I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. everybody to the latest episode of pick a flick you pick a film we watch it simple my name's tony black i'm your host as ever and i'm joined by two gentlemen and scholars today to my imaginary left chris haig hi and to my equally imaginary right dave bond good evening and this is your both your second appearance on uh, on pick a flick since it started chris you were with you were on with Emma, your uh, evil partner in crime, weren't you? <laughs> yes, I was on with Platosaurus Rex. Yes, I was. <laughs> the Platosaurus Rex. Yeah, yeah. She, she, she is. She is a bit of a monster. And I'm not going to edit that out just to piss her off. <laughs> uh, Dave was last on when his Bond team. Do you expect us to talk? Uh, came on and stormed the leaderboard charts for the uh, for the quiz, didn't you? We did. It's the first time I've been let out by myself as well. So I'm I'm a bit, I feel I feel like last day of school. Awesome. We... <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to the top of the leaderboard, and the one we got wrong, I thought was really hard. <laughs> but uh, yes, we are top of the leaderboard at the moment. But then there were three of us. Yeah, you know, you you know your bond. We are going to pick as ever two films based on viewer nominations for you to enjoy and learn a little bit more of. So let's start as we mean to go on. Let's pick a flick. Eyes Wide Shut is a 1999 erotic thriller film loosely based upon Arthur Schnitzler's 1927 novella Traum Novelle, aka Dream Story. The film was directed, produced and co-written by Stanley Kubrick. It was his last film as he died four days after showing his final cut to Warner Brothers Studios. The story, set in and around New York City, follows the sexually charged adventures of Dr. Bill Harford, who is shocked when his wife, Alice, reveals that she had contemplated an affair a year earlier. He embarks on a night-long adventure during which he infiltrates a massive masked orgy of an unnamed secret society. Let's have a look at this one. May I have the password, please? Fidelio. That's right, sir. That is the password for admittance. But may I ask what is the password for the house? The password for the house. Yes. I'm sorry, I... I... I seem to have... forgotten it. That's unfortunate. 
Because here, it doesn't matter whether you have forgotten it, or if you never knew it. You will kindly remove your mask. Kubrick obtained the filming rights for Dream Story in the 1960s, considering it a perfect novel to adapt on a film about sexual relations. The project was only revived in the 1990s when the director hired writer Frederick Raphael to help him with the adaptation. The film was mostly shot in the UK, aside from some exterior establishing shots, and included a detailed recreation of some exterior Greenwich Village street scenes at Pinewood. The film spent a long time in production, as as was Kubrick, and holds the Guinness World Record for the longest continuous film shoot period at 400 days. It was released on July 16th, 1999, a few months following Kubrick's death, to positive critical reaction and $162 million at the worldwide box office. Right, well, this one has gone down in history, hasn't it, a little bit, for various different reasons. What did you make of it? Uh... <laughs> well, I think that's a definitive review. I mean, it's weird that um, I've only just really started getting into Kubrick in the past few years, but there was a documentary called Room 237, and it's about The Shining and fan theories and that sort of thing, and they really brought up Eyes Wide Shut as like a reflection in the mirror of it. And it's interesting looking at it because it says, oh, okay, The Shining's about the breakdown of a family, and Eyes Wide Shut's about the kind of a family that survives a turmoil and a transition and that sort of thing. But I just, mm. I get why people like it. I think it's a very intriguing film. But then I don't know how much of it is just kind of basically Stanley Kubrick just going through like a kind of greatest hits of all the stuff he's done before because of the weird psychosexual elements in it. There's the, you know, the kind of darker elements in it in that it's basically saying, okay, there's an Illuminati New World Order style group that exists and Bill Harper, who's Tom Cruise in it, kind of stumbles into it by accident and it's talking about sexual repression, sexual fantasy, all that sort of thing. I just, I get what he was trying to do, but I just, I thought it was a bit dull. For for a film that's so obsessed with sex and has so many naked people in it, I just, I just yawned a lot. Kubrick films in general are quite distancing anyway. Nolan's often compared to him I don't think they're that similar as filmmakers but their films can be accused of lacking their little heart sometimes, they're they're kind of intellectual exercises Mm. listening to you at the outset describing it as an erotic thriller well, I mean that is how it's described around the places you haven't done anything wrong in doing that but it's the least erotic, erotic film you'll ever see but it's quite intriguing in its first I didn't do a time check on it but I'm assuming 45 minutes or so it's quite intriguing because it really seems to be having something to say about sort of, and I'm going to sound like a wanky film student here, but it, it really seems to be saying something about artifice and the artifice of society because mm. people are only themselves when something in their lives gives them the excuse to. So Nicole Kidman is quite flirtatious at that uh, event they go to at the start, but she's drunk. She only opens up to Tom Cruise, who, looking at the age of their child, they've been together north of a decade. And she can only really open up to him about who she is when she's stoned. He then goes from there on to see, well, a patient has died. And his daughter, who is a similar sort of age to him, answers the door and makes a pass at him eventually. And that's kind of grief allowing her to do it. They can't be themselves and at this basically orgy, unless they're wearing masks. Nobody can be themselves under the normal circumstances life gives us. And as someone who has been married before, I know entirely what it's like to not be yourself with the person you're with sometimes. And I think the film was quite intriguing in that. I mean, stylistically, he got away with it because it's not New York, but, I mean, it really shows up in Full Metal Jacket when Vietnam looks like the home counties. <laughs> yeah, that's but true. he gets away with it in this. Most of it's shot at night. They've recreated a few blocks and it looks great. You say The Shining, there's some accenting of like red in it that reminded me of The Shining in places. But after somewhere around the time he turns up at the orgy, the film kind of seems to forget what genre it's in. Are we supposed to be turned on by this? 
I mean, I'm watching it, and, and all I'm thinking is Kubrick's legendary attention to detail. The women are all literally the same build, literally the same build. And earlier in the film, a woman of literally the same build as everyone he's seen as this erotic party. He can't be himself with because he's in doctor mode. He's doing what society expects of him. But he turns up at that party and it just I couldn't stop thinking of the episode where uh, Homer Simpson joins the Stonecutters. Uh-huh. I yeah. mean, basically, if uh, Patrick Stewart's character has waved his knob around in that, it would have been the same scene. Is it supposed to be a thriller afterwards? Is it supposed to be psychological? I'm not sure, Tom... Cruise is particularly well cast, but watching it, my overriding feeling was that that with that uh, sort of scene in the sort of billiards room. God, I miss Sidney Pollock. Yeah, he's... I mean, one thing I will say against the film is I watched an hour and thirty-five minutes of it last night. It's two hours and thirty-nine. I finished it tonight. I, I'd, I'd had enough of it last night. Yeah, uh, but it's an intriguing film. But it, it's much like a lot of films from though that type of filmmaker. They're easier to admire than love. Yeah. Exactly, and it's interesting when you talk about that because a lot, I mean, in a way I haven't quite considered the comparison between, for example, Christopher Nolan and Stanley Kubrick, and they're both quite technical. It's a lazy comparison, that's why, Chris. I mean, they're not not that alike, but but there is a similar distance audiences put from the product. I get it, It's, it's a very kind of clinical, very cool well put together it's kind of aesthetically pleasing and they're always quite smart but then there's and no heart that. sorry to talk over you but what confuses that then is when you go and watch dr strangelove yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah which is not like that true. at all yeah that's true but that it's weird that when you think of Stanley kubrick in the if you do watch something like you know the shining eyes wide show i mean particularly with eyes wide show i just couldn't care for any of the characters, and that might be me, but normally it's like, oh, okay, there's at least usually one sympathetic character, there's someone to care for, that sort of thing. Whereas they all felt so wrapped up in their own nonsense and quite glossy and artificial and not... Do you know, a few times during this film, it's in the wrong genre for him, but in the opening titles and the way they're framed and everything else, I thought of Woody Allen a few times. Mm. And Woody Allen... I, I love a lot of his stuff. I mean, obviously, if you're producing a film a year over 40-plus years, it's, the, the end results are going to be very. But Woody Allen, at its best, I think is terrific. But I thought during this film, what, what it definitely has in common is they're all dealing with very first-world problems here. Yes. Because mm. it, it, I first saw Eyes Wide Shut when, you know, it was like a few years ago, and I only really rewatched it when I found out I'd be doing it for this. And looking back on it, I just my opinion hasn't really changed. Really, it's a shame because I thought, oh, I'd be able to look on it with a few years and be like, oh, okay, it's fine. It's a character study. It's all this, all that sort of thing. And I've just found like, it's like you said, it's very much first world problems. It's very much this one couple who can't connect and just are having real kind of communication breakdown and about them struggling to either decide what the hell to do. I mean, it's a way they're in purgatory because they're not broken up, but then they're not really a couple. So she contemplates having an affair, and then a year later he decides to go off to a, a weird Freemason sex party in which it's a very weird, you know, rituals and all that sort of thing. So it's... I mean, as, as that uh, is using a sledgehammer to crack a nut, isn't it? You imagine much, someone yeah. at that party that, I mean, if he'd got fully involved and you got some woman blowing him or something, and someone says to him, what are you doing here? Then my wife once thought briefly about cheating on me. Yeah. So I thought I'd go to like a really, really secret sex party yeah. as revenge. It's a very strange film, but as I say, in the first half, or, or the first third, if you like, the film really does set itself up with something quite interesting to say about the lives we all live and how mm. that's not really us. And even the people closest to us, we're not quite ourselves with. But it, it squanders all that and becomes this weird mystery that we never get yeah. any answers to. Yeah, exactly. In the, the way the group operates, it's very unusual in the last third. And it never really says one way or another. He just gets the thing saying, stop coming around or don't contact or whatever's happening but none of that's resolved and it unless that's the point of the film and it's like oh sometimes you'll never get closure so you've just got to move on with your life but like you said the first kind of third 45 minutes or something it does set it up and i was really waiting for the characters to kind of you know grow and go all that sort of thing and kind of crack open really because they are just kind of these particularly because you've got tom cruise and nicole kidman who were were at that time like the you know a-list couple they were the perfect you know kind of two people working together and you were just kind of waiting for them to actually kind of like crack open and show and all that sort of thing. But it never 
happened really for me their performances are actually a little bit well maybe not Nicole Kidman so much but it's more Tom Cruise it's just really flat in my opinion there's nothing there there's a few things to bear in mind with Kubrick firstly his films don't have answers in the context of what you might expect he doesn't want you to understand half the time because (laughs) he wants you to draw your own conclusions I think the other thing is that he always maintains a certain emotional distance from everything in his films. That if you look mm. at or pretty much every Kubrick film, you know whether it's his satires or his his dramas or his you know or his science fiction or his horror because he's he did all pretty much all the genres over the years. War, everything. Uh, yeah. and, and to be honest, Tony, I mean, if, if, has there ever been a director for whom the phrase "moving pictures" is is um, <laughs> better applied to? It's it's because, true because that's, that's what it is. It is a series of beautiful shots linked together. Yeah, well, he's it's, he's an artist. He is a genuine artist, and it goes. Mm. You know, people throw that term around easily with directors, but you know the, the there reason. Are many. That, well, no. The reason that Stanley Kubrick is possibly the greatest director who's ever lived is because he is a, he is a genuine artist. You know, he's he deserves to be put up there with with people like you know Rubens and Van Gogh. You know, he he is genuinely an artist. So his films are, mo- are as much a piece of art as they are an actual moving story. So he always maintains and you don't, that you don't walk away from an art gallery going, but no one told me what that painting was. Like. Exactly, exactly. So I, I get the point, but. This inherent, this film inherently sets itself up as a bit of a mystery. I mean, I'm I'm fine with it with The Shining. I'm very much fine with it with 2001. But this film gallops towards a resolution it never gives us. But it is all smoke and mirrors. I mean, that that comes across. It's not really about as much. It's, it's well, it is about sex, but it's it's more about power. It's not about sex. Is it's it? not. Well, it's, it's not, not really yeah. about no, sex. It's it's, it's a it's about power and it's about corruption and it's about elitism and it's about. All these, all these, these people. It doesn't really matter who those people behind the masks are. It doesn't really matter what the genesis of this secret society that's probably been around for hundreds. And of again, years sex, is. sex is an easy shorthand because, like, a, a lot of men will go out of their way to get that. Yeah. But I mean, it could have been, it could have been masonry. It could have been the Stepford Wives. It could have been anything. It's easier to frame it with sex, but I don't get anything from this film that is in any way really salacious. I mean, you do get filmmakers with a pornographic sensibility, and Kubrick does not have that. Well, it's surprising because he's he'd held on to the rights to Traum Novel, which is the book, mm. for like 30 years. Screenwriter Jay Cox actually purchased it on his behalf in order to keep mm. it under wraps, and he was going to make it straight after 2001, uh, before A Clockwork Orange. And the, but then he got the opportunity to do that, so he moved on to that. So he had it in, in, his, in his drawer for a long time. And he said this, The book explores the sexual ambivalence of a happy marriage and tries to equate the importance of sexual dreams and might-have-beens with reality. The book opposes the real adventures of a husband and the fantasy adventures of his wife and asks the question, is there a serious difference between dreaming a sexual adventure and actually having one? And that is the whole idea, that it's, it is all smoke and mirrors. That at the end, when Sidney Pollack turns around and he says... What if it was all theatre? You know, that's the point. It is, mm. it is all basically a game. And I love that scene. Yeah, it's the a great scene. The second half of the film lets me down, but I mean, I loved Sidney Pollock anyway. He's great in anything. And that room <laughs> is gorgeous as well. Yeah. And yeah. they're just on this rich, lush set. And um, Cruise, I mean, I don't know if the film was shot particularly sequentially, but Cruise improves as the film goes on. Because in that first... 45 minutes or so, which I think is the most interesting part of the film, Tom Cruise is in full-on vanilla sky mode, shit-eating grin. It doesn't convince me he's a doctor. Uh, Tom Cruise is a smart man. Whatever you think of Scientology and all the rest of it, he is quite a smart man. He should be able to pull off being a doctor. And I'm not really that convinced by him, but by the time he goes toe-to-toe with Pollock, who was a much underrated actor, I think they, they pull off a really great scene there. And I can only guess with Kubrick how many days that scene must have taken to shoot. Well, you know, it, as I say, it, uh, it was 400 days totally. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman only committed to six months, but apparently Tom Cruise said, we knew from the beginning the level of commitment needed. We were going to do what it took to do this picture. That's, that's, those were his words. So they, they were invested in, in the whole thing, even when the script kept changing. Apparently it was changing daily. Who did they actually want, though? Who, well, who did Kubrick actually want? Because he was, put, he was pushed to, to cast major stars by the, by the studio. Who did he actually want for Alice and Tom? No, oh, I've, no, I've absolutely no idea. Chris, any idea? 
really? No. I think they're they Oh, yeah, 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 they are. He liked the idea of casting a real-life married couple, because I think Tom... Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were still married at this point, or they were yeah. towards the end. It, funnily enough, it feels like an elegy for their own marriage because they divorced. Yeah, like that soon was a after, a couple of years after. But yeah, definitely. He originally considered Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger. That would have oh, been interesting okay. yeah. because Alec, Alec Baldwin, Alec Baldwin would convince me he's a doctor. He would yeah. have convinced me that he's a fine, upstanding member of society. But I would have believed a slight salaciousness to him too. Yeah. Definitely. Under the yeah. surface, I yeah. actually think I'm not sure about Kim Basinger because I think Nicole Kidman's a better actress. Yeah, yeah. But I think as as the package deal and what we got, I think I might have preferred that. The apartment as well you mentioned, you know, where where uh, where Sidney Pollack lived, the character lived. That was actually, yeah, that was actually Stanley Kubrick and his wife Christiane's apartment, and, and it was recreated. Oh. Yeah, it was it was their New York apartment, but he recreated it. The furniture in the house was furniture from their own home, and they were his wife's paintings. So he, he completely recreated that. So that that room where Sidney Pollack confronts Tom Cruise and all this, and I mean it was gorgeous. So the set design, the set designs, you know, he, he always has these lavish sets. You, you know, I did a very um, slightly naive thing, if you like. I went looking for the name of the cinematographer. You went looking for them. I went looking for the name of the cinematographer. Can't find one. Either I'm blind and there wasn't one, but I would have thought Kubrick, being such a perfectionist, would have shot it himself. It was actually a guy called Larry Smith. Who did it? Yeah, I didn't actually realise he didn't film it himself. I don't know enough about Kubrick, even though I've seen a lot of his films. But the, the film, to me, actually looked a little bit... This will sound daft, because each frame has a lot more attention to it than I'm sure the guy I'm about to name makes. But I've mentioned Woody Allen before, and the, some, a lot about this film, maybe it was the New York setting, felt a bit Woody Allen to me, but albeit with a bigger budget. It, it's not It's not his most ambitious film in terms of the way it looks, Mm. But, I, yeah, I did like it a lot. Well, funnily enough, speaking of cinematographer, Larry Smith actually has said that some of the shots, they didn't require a set. So quite a lot of the backgrounds were rear projection plates. So when, when Tom Cruise is facing the camera, the backgrounds are rear projected. So anything that shows him from a side view was done on the streets of London. But then when you go out to the street sets... It's Tom Cruise walking on a treadmill, and then they back projected. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Very, so... it's very noticeable in cars. I mean, that that actually looked of a previous era. There's a bit where he's in—I I can't remember if it's a cab or what—but it, it looks like an old film noir. It is quite clearly not shot inside a real car. Mm. I mean, these are all stylistic things, and actually, I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know if it's—it is like looking at a fine piece of art and you're just breaking it down, but or maybe it is a sign of disconnection from the film. He wanted it to have a dreamlike quality, apparently. Oh, so it definitely that, it, has that. It reinforces that whole smoke and mirrors, you know, illusion kind of sense. Well, I tell you, I was thinking of when I watched it as well. There's a bit where he goes into a cafe, and the name Jeffrey Unsworth sprung to mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who has shot quite a lot of well-known films, but the one that springs to mind is Superman the movie. Yeah. Particularly where he goes to Lois's penthouse apartment, and there are some lights in shot, and there's such a glow coming off it that that film has a dreamlike quality. And this film had it to to a less, slightly lesser degree. Uh, interesting fact about the lighting, which I only remember because it was mentioned a few times, and it's something I looked on Wikipedia yesterday, is the fact that um, there is a Christmas tree in every single scene, apart from the the reason for this is to kind of transpose the idea of you know Christmas and rejuvenation, all that sort of thing. Because the original story, which is another fun fact, was actually about a Jewish couple, and originally Kubrick was thinking of having Woody Allen as the main protagonist in that what, what do you know but <laughs> it's it's so much considered a christmas film when he goes into the bar and sees the uh, pianist where which is mm. where he gets the password from i noticed the christmas lights then and i was thinking will this go into my christmas film rotation it is genuinely considered to be a christmas film in there's like a it's like a big book of christmas movies and it's basically called a christmas film for adults which i it, i can sort of get in a really twisted way because it is about you know, people getting through stuff and enduring and all that sort of stuff. And the very last scene is them with their daughter going Christmas shopping and she's saying, oh, well, I still love you and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, even if it feels kind of hollow, it does end on what feels like maybe a positive note, maybe, but it really depends. 
it's positive in the Kubrick sense of being positive, isn't it? You know, the, the beauty, the, I love the fact that Kubrick's career, the final line in his career that he ever shot on film was, fuck! Yes. <laughs> really bleakly positive. It's brilliant. I mean, that he just sums yeah. it up. That sums the guy up. Finally, before we move on, Kubrick uh, actually has a cameo in this film. Did anyone spot him? Yeah, no. did anyone spot where he was? No idea. In the Odyssey? <laughs> well, he might, well, he might have been. Was he dressed as a Santa in the store at the end or something? Was he the piano player? No, but you're not far off, right? He was. Oh. He can be seen sitting in a booth at the Sonata Cafe. So I think that's when Tom Cruise is speaking to Nick, the the piano guy. Um, oh. So yeah, he's in the background. So if you if you do watch it again, keep an eye out because he's there very briefly. Very Hitchcockian kind of thing there, where he's in the background. So yeah, that's eyes wide shot thank you guys for for that thank you to the comic roast for nominating eyes wide shot a hell of a, a nomination the comic roasters terrific choice yeah terrific choice yeah, so much to talk choice. about in it yeah i mean we could do an entire podcast on that to be honest but yeah great great first choice comic roasters as put a few out there actually so the comic roast podcast is now up to three episodes a week every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So um, do check we them out. At, fuck that for a load of old bollocks is my reaction. Three a week, bloody hell. They've got stamina. I'll tell. I'll give them yeah. that. You, check, check them out at reviewandroast.com. So pop over there and do give them a, do give them a follow, do give them a look. They're right at the Comic Roast on Twitter. This segues us neatly to talking about great directors and their last films, because obviously, as, as mentioned, Stanley Kubrick's last film was Eyes Wide Shut. So uh, he went out on what some people might suggest isn't a high, but certainly something that he's left a lot of talking points. So the big question is, what great directors have had final films that have potentially let people down or sent them off you know, packing before they died? So, gents, have you got any you've managed to find, or is there any you know of that, that are either great or good or in the middle? I think the thing is, an awful lot of our great filmmakers are still alive. You know, you go, you, you go looking at sort of Billy Wilder, Howard Hawks, and all the rest of it. And they didn't go out on sort of notable embarrassments by any stretch of the imagination. But most of the great directors, but I mean, you know, you can almost uh, some of the directors who are past it, if you like, they haven't gone out on their last film yet. But you can already predict they're not going to go out on a great. And Coppola springs to mind. Mm. I'm trying to think. I mean, the the only one in recent years, and it will probably lead us into our next review. The only director I can think of in recent years who's died is Tony Scott, and yeah. he went out, he went out on an incredibly forgettable film. Unstoppable was just yeah. um, it, uh, it, it's a nothing film. Yeah, it, it yeah. really is. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. It, it. It's just, it's just there. Well, Chris, I've got, I've got, I've got one to ask you actually, because um, you're a big Hitchcock nut. So I was, ju- I was just going to say, Family Plot. What's that like? Oh God. Okay. Um, it's, it's a real shame, really, because in the, because it was done in when was it done? Like seventy, yeah, seventy six. It was only seventy six, and it's a shame, really, because once you got past to like the mid sixties, Hitchcock kind of really started to wane, and a lot of the films he did were kind of more forgettable, not as enjoyable, that sort of thing. I mean, in my opinion, the last great one he did is Frenzy, which is possibly his darkest film. It's his most bloodiest and gruesome and it's about a serial killer and it's very 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 dark but family plot it's just it you know it's a bit of a non-entity of a film really in that it's about uh, a couple of fraud couples and there's a sidekick and it's all about you know a hidden treasure and all that sort of thing but it's just done so listlessly and it's a shame really because it does kind of highlight how tired Hitchcock was towards the end of his life and how this prolific filmmaker had gone from being such of a kind of an auteur really Mm. of terror and suspense and great great storytelling into something that just feels really half-hearted and it is a real Hitchcock outlived his time though I think that's that's the problem with Hitchcock when I think of Hitchcock I do think of like that sort of Mad Men aesthetic and I know he changed styles several times over the years leading to that by the way but you know you know Vertigo Rear Window and all those sorts of films towards the end of his career and then in the 70s you've got Coppola Peter Bogdanovich uh, William Friedkin and all those sorts of directors coming along and Hitchcock suddenly suddenly great though he was looks very dated yeah no no I completely agree I mean it's a bit like the particular actors of the 1940s and 1950s seeing them do stuff in the 70s is really weird and really incongruous and it just feels off so that's why yeah I completely agree I mean Hitchcock really belonged like 
30s, 40s, 50s, and kind of the first half of the 60s. Um, and then from then on, it's kind of like a lot of his powers fading, a lot of his energy. He's because he was, you know, he really is one of the most prolific filmmakers. He made God, something like 30, 40 films in a career, and not all of them were brilliant, of course not. But when he did a the film well, good, it's then. iconic. Mm. Exactly, it's, it's iconic. It's stuff like, like you said, there's Vertigo and Psycho and Rear Window and North by Northwest and all and that sort of thing. Others, that's the thing. We, yeah. we we could sit here and name a top five and someone else's top five can be totally different. Yeah. There aren't many directors who have that. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can't really think Spielberg. of that many directors. Um, yeah, I mean, imagine, I'd say with Spielberg, so sadly some of his more recent ones aren't. No, I know, but if you start, what I'm saying is that there's enough good films that your top three yeah. to five may not be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I get what I, 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 one thing I forgot yeah. to look up, because I started looking up like Sidney Lumet and things like that, his last film was Things We Lost in the Fire, and I can't comment on it because I haven't seen it. But mm. um, I can't. what was the last film John Hughes directed? I don't know, actually. Because as a writer, he went to shit. I mean, he did some really iconic stuff in the 80s. And come the end, he was writing stuff like Problem Child and really bad stuff. He totally lost whatever it was that made him great long before he died. John Hughes's last film is Curly Sue, which was 1991. Starred Jim Belushi, Kelly Lynch. But he, he was writing films up until Drill Bit Taylor and Made in Manhattan. So he, his, last, his last few films were... But he, but he were, definitely, I mean... The age I am, as a first-time viewer or at least first-time follower of film, I miss John Hughes's best years. Mm. Uh, so John Hughes, to me, was this... Sh- and I, I, I'm going to speak ill of the dead here, and I don't mean to, because John Hughes was brilliant. I'm just talking about my perception when I was 12, 13, 14, was this hacky, really child-friendly shit writer mm. who made crap films, and that's not what John Hughes was. And it's not like he was 70, I mean, the the man died quite young, so whatever talent he had would, would seemingly was starting to desert him quite young. Mm. But yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is, a lot of our filmmakers, it isn't just filmmakers that have died. I mean, if, you, if you're going to talk about filmmakers that have died, yes, there have been a few, but of the greats, you've got to sort of go back a little way. I think it's almost more about filmmakers that had a peak that's long since gone, and there are plenty alive that are still like that. That's true. I've I have got to just quickly correct you on Sidney Lumet though. His last film was Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Actually, that's what I meant to say. I only mention it because I think that's a great last film. I think it, you know Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is a really cracking little little thriller. Yes, it is. The, the unforgivable thing about that is I've seen it, and you're absolutely right. It, yeah. I mean, he was just a. a well, he was great. I think he might be the most underrated filmmaker of yeah. all. Time. He, he's he's in he's up there. I think in 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 any top five, I would say. You know, for for a man who anyone who can make Twelve Angry Men as their debut, which is one of the greatest films ever made in history, mm. is is a, is a brilliant. When I watched Argo, I just thought that's the closest we've had to Luna. Yeah. It was very, it was very Lume. We've had a couple of suggestions on on Twitter from people with uh, with with suggestions. Two people saying the same thing actually. Movie Rob and Master Debaters both said Once Upon a Time in America, which is Sergio Leone's final film, which I oh. think is is a really really good shout. Yes, it is. And Leslie Byron Pitt, our mate Les, he said Eyes Wide Shut. Funnily enough, at first, <laughs> you know, so he, he anticipated us there really. Once um, Upon a Time in the West is uh, sorry. Once Upon a Time in America. Is a, is a very good show. Yes, yeah. For somebody who really went out one. on a high. I don't like it as much as some of his other output, but it, yeah, it's really a very, very committed film. I mean, I, I know that's why Tarantino often talks about you know quitting, whether he wills a different matter, but he just says that they don't get better as they get older. Mm. And, they, they, you know, I think a lot of actors do this. They start phoning it in as they get older, and directors kind of do it too. Well, Once Upon a Time in America... And eyes wide shut, whether you like or hate it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It is proof that, you know, some, sometimes they do hold on to their interest at least till the end. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting when you've got a few, a few different kinds of choices. Les also said uh, a film called Being There, which was by um, Hal Ashby. Oh, it's who, a wonderful film. Have you seen it? I haven't. No, and he he he, he mentioned it's wonderful. That. Yeah, it's it, it, um, Peter Sellers plays a character called Chance, and he's a gardener, Chance or Chauncey or something like that. And he's a, a gardener, and he's he, and he's got like um, what's the word? It, he's he's slow. Let's put it that way. I don't want to offend anyone with whatever choice of words I use. He's slow is the best way to put it. But for whatever reason, he ends up being taken as really profound in the film. And Peter Sellers was obsessed with getting this made. And he genuinely thought it would get him an Oscar. And he, and he lost to Dustin Hoffman for Kramer versus Kramer. And he was dead like four months later. And, and a, there is a lot of theorizing that the grief over losing out over what was such a passion project to him was part of it, but I, I can recommend being there. Hal Ashby's output is terrific, but being there is outstanding. Wow. And it, it, when you, when we think of Peter Sellers, we think of a, a comic, and rightly so, mm. but he's, he's wonderful in that film, and it's really understated. And if there's one thing that Peter Sellers wasn't generally, it's understated. No, true. Yeah, well, I've, I've just looked that up, actually, and I'm not sure that is Hal Ashby's final film, so I'm not sure Les has got that right. But even so, you know, a great film to check out. It's just really interesting, you know, seeing seeing who, who left on a high and who didn't. So it's worth looking into a bit more. But I would I would recommend going and looking up people like Robert Altman, Orson Welles. Oh, yeah, he finished on A Prairie Home Companion, and genuine, he probably... Gosford Park was a good film. If he died like mm. four or five years earlier, that was a good film. But his last great was probably Shortcuts. Yeah, all he's, he's so. Ones I mean, his, his, his last great was thirteen years before he died. Yeah, that happens to a lot of them. Um, but yeah, go go and have a look. I, I recommend an article called "22 All-Time Great Directors and Their Final Films" by IndieWire, the playlist. So give that give that a look. Okay, mm. Google that. It's very well, much worth a read because um, it will give you some more insight into this topic. So check it out. In which case, let's move on and pick another flick. Crimson Tide is a 1995 American submarine film directed by Tony Scott produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. It takes place during a period of political turmoil in the Russian Federation, in which ultra-nationalists threaten to launch nuclear missiles at the United States and Japan. It focuses on a clash of wills between the new executive officer, Denzel Washington, and the seasoned commanding officer, played by Gene Hackman, of a nuclear missile submarine arising from conflicting interpretations of an order to launch their missiles. The title suggests a communist maritime threat and also employs a play on words. The submarine in the film is named the USS Alabama, and the nickname of University of Alabama's football team is the Crimson Tide. Let's have a look at this one. Captain, I cannot concur. Repeat my command. Sir, we don't know what this message means. Our target package could have changed. You repeat this order or I'll find somebody who will. I don't know you won't, sir. You're relieved to your position. Cobb, remove Mr. Hunter from the control room. Get no, Lieutenant sir, Zimmern no, here right sir, now. No, sir, I do not concur, and I do not recognize your authority to relieve me under command under Navy regulations. Cobb, arrest this man Captain and get him out of here. Under operating procedures governing the release of nuclear weapons, we cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Cobb, what are you waiting for? Authority, sir. This is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, you continue upon this course and insist upon this launch without confirming this message Stop first. I will be Chief forced back by the rules of precedent. Captain, commanding officer, command, the USS Alabama. I order you to place the XO under arrest under charge of Navy regulations. I say again, I order you to place the XO under arrest 
on the charge of mutiny. Cop! Captain, please, the XO is right. We can't launch unless he concurs. To the USS Alabama. Rebel-controlled missiles being fueled. Launch codes compromised. Dissonance threatened launch at continental United States. Set DEFCON 2. Immediately launch 10 Trident missile sorties. They're fueling their missiles! We don't have time to fuck around! Sir, I think you need time to think this over. I don't have to think this over! Captain, I relieve you of your command of this ship. Cobb, escort the captain to his stateroom. I'm assuming command. You're not assuming anything. Chief of the boat, Captain Ramsey's under arrest. Lock him in his stateroom. Captain, please. Now, Cobb! Aye, sir. Mitchell, Walker, take the captain below. Crimson Tide, I have to say this before we properly talk about it. For me, Crimson Tide is one of the films I associate with being a teenager because... Well, back back in the day, mid-90s, I was around 95, I was around 13, 96. And back, those were the days when, and you'll remember this, well, you'll both remember this, but you especially, Dave, because you're more around my age, I think. Going to the video shop, basically, and getting a VHS out, right? And, yeah, you know, yeah. this was before the days when, you know, we were still buy. you could buy videos, but a lot of people would go down to the video shop everywhere. And I used to go with my dad, and there were three films that I remember having on hard rotation in about 1996. Die Hard with a Vengeance... The Rock and Crimson Tide. And I just I, I just vividly remember watching this film over and over and over again. I absolutely loved it. And I still do. I I just I think it's it really epitomizes the the nineties blockbuster in so many ways. And yeah, it's you know, it's got its good and bad points, but there's just something about Crimson Tide I will love forever. What about you two? Uh, I haven't seen it. I really wanted to, but I've been really busy this week, all right? It does look good, though, and I do like a Denzel Washington movie, and I've seen stuff like K-19, The Widowmaker, and, you know, submarine films, so it does sound really good, and it does sound like quite a good pitch, and I'm just not not at the time. You are perfectly forgiven. I saw Eyes Wide Shut, because I knew I'd definitely be seeing it, and I thought, oh, I'll catch Crimson Tide, and it's a Crimson Peak, then. Jeez, that's the wrong film. Um, (laughs) Crimson Peak's alright, I've not seen Crimson Tide, but it does sound really good, and I do like Gene Hatman, I do like Denzel Washington, it does sound like quite a good mm. kind of mix really but no I, I tell you what I'm just going to use this for you two to either sell me to watch it or sell it to me to avoid it alright so I don't know about you Dave I, I'm, I'm going to sell Chris on this what do, what do you what do you think okay well I, I, I've never seen Crimson Tide okay I watched it tonight and um, uh, my first problem let's get some negatives out of the way first and then I'll be by and large positive I don't like Tony, Tony Scott I never have I cannot point to many Tony Scott films I like at all. It doesn't help. I think he would be quite forgettable if he wasn't the brother of Ridley Scott. Uh, I think he would just be another filmmaker. Whether he'd have had the level of success without his brother's name, I don't know. But let's assume he would. I think the problem is Ridley Scott has made a lot of like forgettable and some bad films in the yeah, downright bad films in the last few years. But his films always look fantastic. And Tony Scott's films always look like the Red Shoe Diaries, you know? <laughs> and there's, there's kind of like almost like a fog somehow to his, his films. And, and he kind of likes his sex scenes filmed against blue backgrounds and all the rest of it. I've just never liked his stuff. I've never liked the films. No, he's not offensive like a McGee or a Michael Bay or anything like that. But I I just think his films are kind of like a bit nothing, not over great acting performances, not particularly visually interesting. And a lot of his biggest hits like Top Gun, Days of Thunder and stuff, I flat out don't like. And more controversially, I, I don't like True Romance either, which I know a lot of people really enjoy. So I am not a Tony Scott fan. And I put this film on, and within the first couple of shots, there was a foggy sort of blue-coloured shot, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's a Tony Scott film. And I was quite worried. From there, I actually thought it was very, very good. I I, I did not like the score very much, even though it's Hans Zimmer. I thought it was heavy-handed and intrusive and got on my nerves. And I think the film had the most incongruous ending I've seen since Super 8. In that when I watched Super 8, we watched a film full of this alien eating people. And then they waved it off like it was E.T. at the end. And, and this film has Gene Hackman behaving like an absolute piss pot all the way through. <laughs> and then at the end, Denzel Washington looks at him like a 
you know, friendly old mentor type. Yeah. Um, he holds a gun to the head of innocent people during this film. But I have to say, there was nothing offensive in the way it was shot, and there normally is with Tony Scott for me. I really, really, and maybe I'm being greedy here because he gave us decades of his best work, but I miss Gene Hackman. In terms of tone of performance, this is probably most like his performance in um, Unforgiven. Yeah. Like an overinflated ego with absolute power in that arena, not listening to sense, but underneath it all not intending to be bad just warped by too much power denzel washington is denzel washington and i don't mean that to be rude he's just great he's always great in it and it's got a good supporting cast it's got james gandolfini it's got vigo mortensen but Mm. a couple of times i thought i was watching william sadler the guy (laughs) uh, shawshank redemption henry dumbass yeah absolutely but i have to say I have some problems with the film. I haven't had time to let it settle because I literally watched it tonight. I think in some respects it would be a fantastic episode of Star Trek with a little bit of like tweaking. Mm. And when he started talking to that guy about Scotty and Kirk, I'm thinking, oh God, get him on the small screen. Can we have Denzel Washington in the next Star Trek series? (laughs) But I thought this was really good, solid quality entertainment. Uh, the problem only was, I mean, I've got some other problems with it, but the, the first one that springs to mind, and it ain't major, is when they started trying to make it in any way an action film. That doesn't really work with submarines. Mm. So when they were like, you know, or when they were sort of trying to dodge missiles, it didn't necessarily work that well. But you've got some fantastic lead performances. You've got a good script. There are bits of it that I can actually hear Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I've watched a really quality film tonight, and I, 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 I'm sorry to all of you who are true romance fans out there. I, I, I'm not even going to argue with you if you love it. Absolutely great. And if you like Top Gun and all the rest of it, great. But this is the first Tony Scott film I've seen that I haven't flat out hated. And I, I actually quite like it, and I could see myself watching it again. Well, that's good. Uh, if you do like true romance, nominate it, and we'll make Dave watch it. And talk about it on the podcast. Happily, yeah, and the thing is, and I mention it on my own podcast sometimes, I will always watch anything with an open mind. If you genuinely want me to watch True Romance, I will watch it as though I've never seen it before and I'm good at that. And I will try to be kind to it if I can. I, I, I always watch any film with optimism. And I tried tonight as well. And first couple of shots, I thought, oh my God, it's Tony Scott and I'm not a fan. But I genuinely enjoyed this. I think I think Crimson Tide is a very solid piece of entertainment with some wonderful lead performances and an actor I really, really, genuinely miss. Solid is a good way to describe it. You know, it's not. It doesn't reinvent the wheel. It's not. It's not amazingly done in any in every single way. It's 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 a bit cheesy in more than enough places. It is very nineties in its execution. It's glossy. It has all the. It has all the Tony Scott isms to an extent. It's very, you know, um, very gonko. It's very, ma- very masculine. There's hardly any women in this film. You know, there's about two women, and they they've got like about five minutes screen time. Uh, who are the women in it? Because I cannot remember women in it. I've only uh, seen it once. Where were they women? They, in they, it? they they are like yeah, they are like literally blinking. You'll miss them. It's like I mean, to be fair, it's all male submarine. I don't have a problem with that. But it's like, where were they? Just out of interest, because I don't remember. Well, I don't even think they they were properly cast. They're like you can see women in in the background at like a party at some point, you know. For, oh for yeah, the yeah. Denzel Washington's at like his kid's birthday party. Yeah, I think I think his wife's got a small role, but it's it's very very small. So it's extremely gongo. It's very masculine. So you know, it it, it is. It's a boys. It's a very much a boys 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 own film, really. Boys own. <laughs> Not that boy zone. <laughs> um, if yeah, you like yeah. boy zone, you'll love this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not not that boy zone. Ronan Keating isn't in this film. I I hasten. Yeah, um, boy zone. He means more like Roy of the Rovers than he means Roy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, I th- I think I think it it builds to the performances are what really are what really save it. You know, it wasn't though. However, supposed to be Gene Hackman at first. They wanted they originally wanted Simpson and Bruckheimer, uh, Warren Beatty, or Al Pacino. Both of those would have been horrifically to paint Captain Ramsey. I agree. Is, I mean, yeah. Al Pacino is a really good actor, but he has gone a bit hoo ha and shouty in recent years. That wouldn't have worked at that at this point in terms of. How he, I don't know their relative ages, but in terms of how he would have appeared on screen, I think he would have been too young, Al Pacino. I think it, 
it requires someone with a pot belly close to retirement. And I think Warren Beatty is just... Uh, not that this part inherently couldn't be a handsome man, but I think Warren Beatty's almost too good-looking. I think, yeah. basically, Gene Hackman's as good as it gets for this role. Yeah, he's perfect, because he's he's meant, he's meant playing a man who is... You know, the film plays with a few different ideas. It's, it's about old and new, it's about black and white, you know, there's a lot of racist undercurrents, there's a lot of, you know, how the, the nuclear future's going to look, you know, kind of thing. Ramsey represents... Ramsey represents an old school way of thinking in that, you know, you follow orders to the absolute letter, whereas Washington is the guy who comes in. Because the whole thing, Chris, for your, for your benefit. That, no, no, that's completely not true. How so? Uh, because, if, if anything, Denzel Washington is much more to the letter. He is much more about... I mean, he basically arrests him and relieves him of duty because he is not following the rules. You know, and he's holding gun. You know, later on, he holds a gun to one of his crew members' head. Actually, yeah, if anything, yeah, yeah, Denzel actually. Washington is actually his character is much more the bookish. These are the rules than uh, De- uh, Gene Hackman's character is much more the cowboy. Well, I suppose, I suppose what I mean, I, I do agree. Actually, I think you're right there. But what, what I, th- I suppose I mean is, in the terms of Ramsey. He believes in the idea of the chain of command, and even though he's wrong, and even right. though yes. he, even though he, li- I didn't word that properly. I didn't think of that. You, I agree with you. In Washington, is the guy who's doing it by the by the book. Ramsey, however, has a different version of the book. In that, you do what your commanding officer tells you. Yeah, whatever. I'm God. I, I, I am God out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, I and mean, it's it's quite instructive that when the film finishes, the first thing you get is that bit of text that explains yeah. that. It, it isn't down to a submarine captain now to fire a nuke. It's down to the president. Because the whole idea of this, Chris, ultimately, is that they get this... There are nuclear manoeuvres, basically, and they yeah. get an order through, or part of an order, which could be to fire on Russia. No, and no, 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 sorry. They get a full order. They, oh, that's it. They get a full order. You're right. They get a full order. They get a full order that's been... That they can't verify. And... Hackman reckons they haven't got time because the Russians are fueling their missiles. They've they've got to strike first. And Washington says, "Look, we need we need confirmation. We need to know that we're doing this. Otherwise, we could fucking well start World War Three. And so yeah. the whole thing basically becomes a mutiny story. So you've got two sides and what they believe, but you've also got this rippling undercurrent. Well, uh, of, what what of, you've actually got is they're told to fire, and they're going to. And even Denzel doesn't have a problem with that. But then they get a partial message through before it goes wrong. And Denzel's thinking, well, that might have countermanded that. Yeah, that might that's have it. told us not to. Yeah. And he's that's just saying it. we need to like take time to figure out what it is because the 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 basically the outcome of us getting this wrong is nuclear Armageddon. So mm. we're better off waiting, whatever the risk to us. And Gene Hackman is just, no, we've been told to fire. That's our most current order. So that's what we must do. Yeah. And it's, and it's a really interesting battle of wills between these two, these two actors, really. You know, there's, there's a lot of good character actors circling around them, but it's, it's, the, it's the tension and the dynamic and the chemistry between Hackman and Washington which sells this film. And there are some really riveting sequences where they're not even the necessarily the ones that where, they, where they're going at each other, hammer and tongs, you know, with, with, with words, where, where there's much more subtle conversations. And that, that's why there's some interesting, you know, people who've, who ghost wrote this film, you know, Dave May mentioned Tarantino and that the scene that he does is um where all the uh, all the crew are talking about their favorite submarine movies and and things like that so you, it's very obvious yeah, he's talking that, about yeah. Kurt Jurgens and all the rest yeah of it. Kurt uh, Jurgens and and, 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 and also there's a scene later, later when they talk about the silver surfer that's got to be yeah tough. yeah that is basically because if you look at if you look at Reservoir Dogs Mr. Orange has the silver surfer as a poster on his yeah board. Anything comic booky and and that kind of thing yeah. would be would be Tarantino. The other ghostwriter, however, was Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown, oh, and he God, yeah, and he wrote the garden scene in The Godfather. Yeah, well, in this case, he he wrote the scene in in the officer's mess where they reveal Hackman and Washington reveal their different philosophical views, and that's a very sort of quiet but telling scene. It's and brilliant. It, it's brilliant, and it, it's it, there's this whole scene about um, horses. And about as they call them, Lipizzaner Lipizzana stallions. Was it just me, or was that meant to have a racist overtone? Oh god, yeah, it's completely racist because one of the stallions is white and one of the stallions is black. 
But it's this whole thing of, of they're debating where these horses come from, and Ramsey's saying they're born white, these horses, whereas Hunter, the uh, Washington's character, says they're born black. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, as it turns out, however, um, they're both wrong, because uh, Lipizzans are born a dark colour and gradually turn white between the ages of 6 and 10 years old. Um, and they're Slovenian, they're not Portuguese or Spanish. So <laughs> they both got that wrong, <laughs> as it turns out. So the, the writing fizzes with these, with these, you know, these mm. scribes who, who managed to put some interesting things in there. Mm. Not everyone was happy, though. Denzel Washington confronted Tarantino on set because he wasn't happy with the, um, the racial slurs in the film. And uh, apparently he's since apologised to Tarantino. So, yeah, you know, th- there's that. And the US Navy refused to assist in filming because the- their main objection was that there was a mutiny uh, written into the script. So, uh, which surprised Tony Scott because he said because he'd done Top Gun, he thought he had an in with the Navy. So he was quite surprised, really, when they said no. When you mentioned long shoots on Eyes Wide Shut earlier, I, I couldn't help but think of Apocalypse Now. And Apocalypse mm. Now wanted... Um, help from the US Armed Forces and for various reasons they refused they ended up getting like help from like Cambodia or something it was like ridiculous but when it comes to something like the Green Berets with like John Wayne because it was totally our armed forces are amazing they would help so it doesn't surprise me that when it comes to something that's got conflict in it the American armed forces said no because then they don't have an appetite for that sort of thing. It's interesting how they react to, to various different films or uh, or things like that. So you know, Crimson Tide can be seen to some extent as as positive and negative towards these things. So it has that uh, that two sides to it. The only problem I've got is uh, you know uh, all of the disagreements in well, not the first. If you take the first half of the film off, because it's set up. But if you take the second half of the film, well, the first bit of that, where they're starting to fall out and all the rest of it, I don't have a problem with, and I don't have a problem with how it's handled. But by the time he's holding a gun to people's heads, I'm thinking he's lost his shit. Mm, mm. And I don't care how much of a nuclear threat there may or may not be, he has lost his shit. Mm. So when at the end of the film, Denzel Washington is smiling at him like he's like his granddad or something i tend to think that like that is so incongruent to be not funny it's weird i th- i think you know they i think they were trying to sort of make a point that these men could overcome that and i it is there, yeah, there, they, there they is kind of they kind of succeeded actually i i get that like hackman understood where he'd gone wrong and Denzel Washington being an, an analytical guy had sort of forgiven it i i kind of get that but the fact is, they went just a shade too far with Hackman's character to let to make that plausible. I think you're right. One final thing before we finish. Did you notice his little dog? Yes. How weird is that? At the end, Chris, that Gene okay. Hackman's gruff, gruff submarine commander has a tiny little dog. It's like it's like a it's like a little ding, 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 ding thing that he's that he's carrying. Uh, I, I I think, like, that's weird. The funny thing is, I just come off watching. Eyes wide shut. So I'm I I was in the mindset of a director who doesn't do anything by accident. You know, he analyzes yeah. every percent of the frame. So I forgot how sloppy by comparison Tony Scott is. So when they come out of their hearing where he's being allowed early retirement and his dog is pissing and or shitting on naval land had that been kubrick there would have been been a message in that that would have yeah. been that's what he thinks of like the navy now but like tony scott just probably went oh fuck it print it yeah <laughs> more than likely and the best thing about the dog is that his name's bear and he's like he's, he's a, <laughs> yeah because it's um it's a reference to uh the legendary head football coach of the university alabama of alabama's athletic teams which as oh. i said were named the crimson tide a guy called paul bear bryant but uh, i didn't wonder dog, if alabama was a uh, <laughs> yeah well possibly i don't know but um anyway crimson tide Good nomination from Jane Douglas Jones. Jane, I, all all I would like to say about that is I have not enjoyed a single thing Tony Scott has done, and I managed to enjoy that tonight. So thank you. Oh, that's that is nice. You can find Jane at Five Hundred Days of Film, where she says, "Join me as I watch Five Hundred Films in Five Hundred Days." She um, would hate it if I joined her. If I turned <laughs> up at her house and just said we're going to watch the film, she'd be like, "Who the fuck?" She'd call the police. <laughs> 
So like, be careful what you wish for. Check out Jane's website, 500daysoffilm.com, and give her a follow because um, she's uh, regularly talking about film and she's, uh, it seems like she's on a really interesting quest. So do join her on that. So thanks a lot, Jane. For our final segment then, it's question time. And Chris Hayes, you are up. <laughs> okay. On the plus side, Chris, as much as I want you to fuck this up because we're top of the leaderboard, <laughs> I, I, I cannot help at all because Clue I saw once in about 1990. Yes, your film of choice is Clue, which is the 1985 film based on the board game Cluedo, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's such a guilty pleasure comedy favourite of this mine, but yeah, I, I, it's really, really, really stupid, but I love it, and everyone in my family loves it, and I have really positive kind of associations with it, so yeah, Aww. I had to pick it. Good choice, good choice. Are you ready for eight questions on Clue? I think so. Okay, alright. <laughs> I'm really okay. nervous now, Jesus. Alright. Well, you ha- you have, you're, you're on the leaderboard already, because you had a, a Halloween quiz face-off with Wiki Shuffle's Chris Wallace, so you've got, oh, you've got yes. one... You've got one point, so you need to build on that today. So, question one. And bear in mind, Dave, you can jump in if you know the answers. Okay, so bear that in mind. Question one. Professor Plum claims he works for the World Health Organization, which is part of the United Nations Organization. That means he works for... You know who. Well done. You know who. (laughs) Well done. That's a point to you. (laughs) Question two. Why is the colour of each character's car significant? Oh, um, it's the same colour. It's either of the names of the outfit. Not that, not that outfits in the thing. Outfits in the uh, on the game. So it's the same name. So Miss Scarlet drives a red car. Colonel Mustard a yellow. That sort of thing. Yeah, same as their game playing piece. So yeah, that's. I'll give you that one. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well done. Question three: Who was originally meant to play Miss Scarlet, only to end up in rehab four days before filming? Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher, well done. Three for three. You're doing very well. Do you know any of these, Dave? No, but having said that, if you'd said actress <laughs> in rehab in the early 80s, I might have had a shot. True. Because uh-huh. I just imagine Carrie Fisher just gets let out on day release for whatever she's doing. <laughs> oh, stop it. She's fine. <laughs> Hang on a she... minute. She released a press release only about six weeks ago saying she was mad. She's Princess yeah. Leia. She can do what she likes. Exactly. Right, okay, question four. Where do the secret passages in the movie lead to? Well, they lead to, like, this, like the billiard room, the study, the... I, I, don't, I, I don't know the, the specific, specific ones. I think there's one from the study to the kitchen, because that's how they kill the cook. I think there's one from, like, the billiard room to the dining room? I, don't, I honestly I can't name them all. Sorry. Well, I will. I will give you. I'll give you half a point for that because you got kitchen to study right. So yeah, yeah well done. The rest, of the other one was conservatory to lounge. So that is quite tricky. <laughs> well done. Okay. Well done for knowing that. Okay. Who is the actor playing Mister Body, and why was he chosen because of his name? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 I do not know. Sorry. Okay. He was he was the lead singer of punk rock band Fear, and his name is Lee. Ving. They decided to choose him because he dies, so he's technically leaving. So they, they yeah. cast him as leaving. <laughs> Which is brilliant. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay, there you go. Number six. What number does the phone in the lounge list? Um, oh, God. Can I have a hint? It has two letters and four numbers. Yeah. Sorry, I, I have no idea. Sorry. Okay, he's quite a tricky one. That's a Matt Latham level question. It's a YL-7091, which is a prefix for a 1950s radio station, because obviously it's set in the 1950s. Ah. So, um, yeah, okay. Uh, number seven, how many endings were shot? I know that one. Well, three technically, but there was also a fourth one that was, like, storyboarded. So, I... I if it's storyboarded... Hang on, he said shot. Well, three, then. No, he said shot. If it's storyboarded, it's not a shot, is it? I, I can't remember if the fourth one was actually shot or not, though. That's the thing. Because it's not included on the DVD or anything, so I would go, probably go with three. You've got it, it right. It's to three different That's the only cinemas. one so far I would have got right. I knew that. Bad luck, Dave. There were three, and different ones were shown in different theatres. Not so. to show you up or anything, but did you realise the highest grossing Bond film adjusted in North America is Thunderbird? <laughs> Just a bit of a reprise there. <laughs> Just because he anyway. wants to feel good about himself. Yeah. Anyway, carry okay. on. Um, now we've massaged Dave's ego. Question eight. After the end of production, the producers of which TV series bought and redecorated the mansion set? 
Uh, is it something like Dynasty or Dallas? Or I'm trying to think the big Dynasty. Houses. Oh, yeah, yeah good, good guess. Okay, well done. Okay, after eight questions, Chris, you've scored five and a half. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's all right. Yeah, I'm yeah, happy that with that. That you up to six and a half on the leaderboard. You're still behind Do You Expect Us to Talk, but you are ahead of Matt Latham, which is always a good thing because he likes being top of leaderboards. So it's nice to unseat him. Yeah. Um, so well done. Okay, well done on Clue. Oh, thank you. With that, it's time to uh, call proceedings to a close, gentlemen. So thank you very much for uh, for being guests this week and helping us pick some flicks. Chris, why don't you tell us where we can find you online? Uh, you can generally find me floating about being very sarcastic and generally excitable <laughs> uh, on Twitter at, uh, at higher underscore boy. Um, I generally just float around and whenever Tony asks me to do a podcast, I do. That's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I wish I was way more excited as a person. I'd be like, yeah, I'm doing this and this. And I'm like, no, just, I just generally work on Netflix. That's I was going to say, so, I do love yeah. how you said, whenever Tony asked me to do a podcast, I say, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's because I'm tired, Mr. Black. Okay. That's why. I'm like, yeah, so whenever he tells me to do it, I just, yeah. No, I do. I love coming. I love coming on here. So yeah, I will accept that answer as contractually obliged. Thank you, uh, <laughs> Dave. How about you? Yeah, well, me personally, I'm at the Pasty Kid 1976 on Twitter. Uh, my podcast. Do you expect us to talk? I say mine. It's not mine at all. It's uh, Becca Andrews and Chris Byrne with myself. We are at expect us to talk on Twitter. We are facebook.com forward slash expect us to talk, and. If you search, do it. Do you expect us to talk on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the rest of it? You'll find us. We are currently a James Bond retrospective series. That's not what will remain. We will go through all the Bond films and we'll move on to other things. But at the moment, that's what we are. Come see us. Definitely, do check them out. It's oh. a, it's a uh, it's a great little Bond podcast which I'm thoroughly enjoying. So uh, so yeah, give it a go. You can find Pick a Flick obviously at Pick a Flick Pod on Twitter. You can stream the podcast on Acast. We're also on Stitcher now as well. Just got on that. You can obviously find us on iTunes. That's great, because I, I looked for you there and couldn't find you. Yeah, we, we, we are on there now. Yeah, and we're on iTunes finally, because we've had no end of problems with that lately. So we're on iTunes. And this is no fault of Acast, I have to say. They've been doing brilliantly to try and get us set up. It's just been an iTunes bug. So, yeah, do check us out there. Well, you can also download the episodes on Podomatic. You go to our website, to the episodes page, and you can find the link to our Podomatic um, storage area for episodes some episodes aren't going to be on there forever though it's we've got a, a limited shelf life on there because i don't want to have to pay so uh, <laughs> you, you you can get episodes for seven weeks and then they're gone so make the most of them they'll, they'll still be streaming though they'll still be on the streaming sites forever and uh, i encourage you to do that so yeah you can find us there we'll be back next week but until then remember you pick them we watch them simple as that see you later It's pick a flick. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.